Well, coming up here is not walking the green mile, <laughs> but sometimes it feels like that. So, um, I have trouble keeping this on today, I think. I'm going to do something while we wait. The kids I know want to stay here and hear me, but there is children's <laughs> church. I put this slide up to remind us of what we can know for certain. Uh, there's a lot of debates in eschatology, the study of the last times. Sometimes they get pretty heated, but uh, they really don't have any bearing on orthodoxy or proper Christian belief. Took three or four hundred years, but the church came up with some creeds. They don't have anything about a lot of those areas in it, but it do that does have these points. They're in there. So, I thought about composing like a Revelation rap song for this morning, <laughs> but uh, it had too many obscure theological terms in it. So, I'm really a lot better with charts and tables and diagrams and things like that. So, I. Uh, uh, Drew a picture instead. (laughs) So, this is a 10,000 foot view of Revelation, at least that. Uh, The judgment passages, just the judgment passage, which is, of course, most of it. It kind of comes out of an observation that. We have these three sets of these judgments in the seals and the trumpets and the bowls, and they all have a similar pattern to them. And so I kind of put this together to show us that pattern because all the rest of the material in Revelation is arranged around these three sets. So every one of these seals, trumpets, bowls starts out in heaven. The first four judgments are kind of alike. There's some similarity between them. Uh, We saw this uh, in chapter 6. It's the four horsemen, the famous horsemen of the apocalypse. The five and six are a little different in every case. In in chapter 6, with the seals, it was an altar we went to in heaven. And then we saw a bunch of stuff happening on earth that wasn't very pretty. Each one has a different portion of the earth included, mentioned in it someplace. In the seals, it's one-fourth. In the trumpets, it's one-third. And when you get to the bowls, it apparently is all who oppose God. There's a place within each one of these where the dwellers on the earth, that's the phrase that's used in Revelation, respond to the judgment and... It's usually a negative thing. We saw in uh, in the seals, uh, Marty went through last week, that they tried to hide from the wrath of God, everybody, from the top to the bottom of society. We'll see, as we look at the trumpets, that there's a failure to quit worshiping idols and repent. And finally, in the bulls, there's two statements about refusing to repent. There's an interlude between the sixth and seventh seal. In the case of the seals and the trumpets, it's, they're, they're pretty long. There's a chapter, chapter and a half in one of them. When you get to the bowls, it's only three verses. 
but it's important three verses because the dwellers on the earth allow themselves to be deluded into believing they can oppose the almighty God with military force. And that's the picture that you end up with in the bowls. And finally, before the seventh judgment, the seventh seal, the seventh trumpet, the seventh bowl, there's an audible signal from heaven. And we'll see next week in chapter 8 when Marty does that, that uh, it's silence is the audible signal. But in the trumpets, it's voices from heaven. And in the, in the bowls, it's a voice from the throne that says, it's, it is done. So around that, you've got to build all the rest of this stuff, all these visions that seem so strange and, and, and obscure to us. So there's lots and lots that we could look at in, this, uh, <laughs> in, in any of these chapters, in any of these uh, visions. Um, as we've done so far, we're trying to stay out of the debates. We're trying to get to the things that seem pretty clear, that seem pretty, pretty obvious to all of us. Um, it's just a reading, reading it like the first century people that got these things to begin with. I'm going to focus on five points. We're going to talk about seals on the forehead, or being sealed on the forehead. We're going to talk about the identity of those who were sealed. We're going to talk about who owns salvation. We're going to talk about the Great Tribulation, and we're going to talk about the centrality of the Lamb. So, kind of getting into that first passage. After this, I saw four angels standing at the four corners of the earth, holding back the four winds of the earth, that no wind might blow on the earth or sea or against any tree. Then I saw another angel ascending from the rising of the sun with the seal of the living God, and he called with a loud voice to the four angels who had been given power to harm the earth and sea, saying, Do not harm the earth or the sea or the trees until we have sealed the servants of our God on their foreheads. So like the four horsemen uh, in the previous chapter, this vision actually uh, takes us back to Zechariah. Um, Marty had this as well a couple weeks ago. Again, I lifted my eyes and saw, behold, the four chariots came out from between two mountains, and the mountains were mountains of bronze. The first chariot had a red horse, the second a black horse, the third white horses, and the fourth chariot dappled horses, all of them strong. Then I answered and said to the angel who talked with me, What are these, my lord? And the angel answered and said to me, these are going out to the four winds of heaven after presenting themselves before the Lord of all the earth. So the vision we have in John, in Revelation here, is, a, is based on the same idea, the same pattern. Uh, the phrases in both Zechariah and John in, in Revelation use the four corners, the four winds, are speaking of the whole entirety of creation. That's what those are trying to communicate. While wind itself is regularly found in both the Old and New Testament, as a metaphor for difficulties or chaos or judgment. Uh, we see this in the teachings of Jesus, the parable of the two houses, the one built on rock and one built on sand. It was a wind that came against those and whether they stood or not. And Jesus calming the wind on the Sea of Galilee. Uh, the psalmist prays in Psalm 11:6, let him, the Lord, rain coals on the wicked, 
fire and sulfur and a scorching wind shall be a portion of their cup. And Zechariah later in chapter 7 is told by God that God complains, as I called, they, his people, would not hear. So they called, and I would not hear. Says the Lord of hosts, and I scattered them with a whirlwind among the nations that they had not known. This would suggest that the four angels we have here uh, also are probably references to the four horsemen. Since they are part of the immediate context, they clearly have the power to harm. If we tried to stick to a strict chronology of some kind, this would put this whole vision right in the middle of chapter 6. But really, that chronology is not as important as, as the idea of why the judgment is paused. And it's paused for the purpose to mark the servants of God. Uh, we'll see later in Revelation that this idea of marking or sealing people becomes a way to distinguish between those who are servants of God and those who are opposed to God. That's the theme that gets carried through. Now, there's a lot of speculation about what these marks or seals are. Um, but whatever the case, I think the most important thing for us to realize is that there's another Old Testament background for this. And that's in Ezekiel. It's kind of a long passage, but I think it's worth reading. Um, the, it starts out really in the, in the context back in chapter 8 of Ezekiel, where Ezekiel has this vision where he's, as a person in the form of the appearance of a man, come to him and begins talking to him about Jerusalem in his day. And as we kind of get toward the end, this, this appearance to, to this man that was talking to Ezekiel said, cried in his ears with a loud voice saying, bring near the executioners of the city, each with a destroying weapon in his hand. And behold, six men came from the direction of the upper gates, which faces north, each with his weapon for slaughter in his hand. And with him was a man clothed in linen with a writing case at his waist. And they went in and stood beside the bronze altar. Now the glory of the Lord of Israel had gone up from the cherub on which it had rested and uh, to the threshold of the house. And he called to the man clothed with linen who had a writing case on his waist. And the Lord said to him, Pass through the city, through Jerusalem, and put a mark on the foreheads of the men who sigh and groan over all the abominations that are committed in it. And to the others, that's the executioners, he said in my hearing, pass through the city after him and strike. Your eye shall not spare, and you shall show no pity. It's a pretty grim picture. Uh, I think more important than whatever this mark is that we see mentioned here and in Revelation and other places, what's really important is where it's put. I'm not sure whether you, we think about that very often, but in Jewish thought, the forehead was considered the seed or the place of your perspective or your worldview. Um, God told his people through Moses, uh, these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. But he also goes on and says, you will bind them as a sign on your hand and they shall be frontless between your eyes. As Israel continues to stray further and further away from the Lord, we find these kind of statements in the prophets Isaiah 
speaking for God, says, You are obstinate, and your neck is iron sinew, and your forehead brass. And Jeremiah has a pretty interesting thing to say about this people who are sliding away from God. You have the forehead of a whore. You refuse to be ashamed. And as we see in Ezekiel 4, or 9 up here in verse 4, the mark was placed on those who sigh and groan over all the abominations that are committed in Jerusalem. That means that the servants of God, the servants of our God that are being sealed here, should have their foreheads consistently oriented toward a biblical worldview and not let the values and the commitments of their lives be polluted by the prevailing worldview and the culture in which they happen to live. The next verse provides more information on who those are who are going to receive the seal. This is fun to read. Anyway, and I, and I heard the number of the seal, the 144,000 sealed from every tribe of the sons of Israel. And as you can see up there, 12,000, 12,000, 12,000, 12,000, 12,000, 12,000, 12,000, 12,000, anyway, and on to the point where you get 12,000 tribe of Benjamin who were sealed. So the numbers here are symbolic. We've talked about that already with Revelation. In apocalyptic and prophetic literature, 12 is associated with completed order, uh, with the people of God. A thousand indicates usually a large number. Squaring a number or multiplying it by a thousand is a way to emphasize that number or, or indicate how large it is. Here we have both 12 squared and multiplied by a thousand. So we got the whole thing going on this one, which becomes significant number throughout the visions. Uh, we'll see it again when we get to chapter 14, the same 144,000. And when you get to the end, in chapter 21, look for the 144,000s and the 12s and the 1,000s and all the measurements of the new heaven and new Jerusalem. There are some interesting quirks in this list of the tribes of Israel. It starts with Reuben. Who, it doesn't start with Reuben, who's the eldest son. It starts with Judah. Uh, probably looking back to Revelation chapter 5, where we learned the lion of the tribe of Judah. Uh, Joseph is included, but so is his son Manasseh. Both Manasseh and Ephraim stand in for Joseph usually, but here Ephraim's just missing. And Dan's nowhere to be found. So, lots of speculation about all that, none of it definitive. It's probably more important that the numbering of the tribes that we... In Numbers chapter 1, we have a census taken of those in Jerusalem or those of the people of Israel. Uh, and they're listed by tribes, and they're looking for every male 20 years old and upward who were able to go to war. In the whole passage, there are no numbers. One just goes through each of the tribes. It's a different set, of course, different order. The actual 12 tribes are there. Uh, but it's not hard to imagine this picture, this hearing this, the, you know, thinking about it, this vast army of evenly numbered ranks ready to march to war. But of course the big question then becomes who are these people? Are they literal Jews? Uh, are they New Testament believers standing in the ranks for spiritual warfare like that described by Paul in Ephesians 6? 
certainly John, as one steeped in the Old Testament, and really probably a lot of us who have read through the Bible at all, uh, would have recognized the similarity between this passage and those Old Testament census passages. And it's not hard to imagine a vast army numbered, ready to go to war. Personally, though, I think that what the, the key may be in what John says in reporting this experience rather than in the identity, trying to find it somewhere else in there. Throughout Revelation, as you read it on your own or as you hear us teaching about it, it's important to pay attention to whether John saw a vision, which may or may not have a sound associated with it, or whether he just heard something. Here, we learn that John heard the number 144,000 and what goes on after that. He did not see a vision. But when he did see another vision, it was not a vast a vision of vast military formation. Instead, after this I looked and behold, and a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and the peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands, and crying out in a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. And all the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders, the four living creatures, and they fell on their faces before the throne and worshiped God, saying, Amen, blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. Amen. John saw a great multitude that no one could number, but it was anything but uniform. It had people from all nations and tribes and tongues and cultures, uh, the numbering was beyond what could be counted. What John is probably getting across to us here with these two different pictures that I think of the same group is the first one with all these ordered ranks and distinct firm numbers would tell us that those who are be sealed, the number of those is completed. And this group tells us the number of those is extensive, beyond counting. It's similar, really, this description of these people that we saw in Revelation 5, uh, where you have the living creatures and the elders singing the new song before the Lamb. Uh, By your blood you ransom people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And here the multitude is crying out with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God, who sits on the throne, and to the Lamb. This is important. We don't own our salvation. Salvation is owned by God. And those sealed are his slaves. The word servants here is the same word for slaves in in Revelation. The Christian walk is not about personal benefits. It's not self-centered. It's not even mankind-centered. It's God-centered. Salvation is always in every way of the Lord. All of salvation, our justification, our sanctification, our glorification, begins and ends with our Lord Jesus Christ. And so the worship begins and ends with amen. While ascribing blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might 
to our God. The next text is kind of a little insertion in here in the whole picture of things. Might present a little more of a challenge. Then one of the elders addressed me saying, who are these clothed in white robes and from where have they come? I said to him, sir, you know. And he said to me, these are the ones coming out of the great tribulation. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the lamb. It's not uncommon for Jewish teachers or characters in apocalyptic or prophetic literature to ask questions that they knew their listeners could not answer. An example of this we actually find in Ezekiel when he was taken to that valley form of bones, you know, dim dry bones. Uh, and the, the one who took him there said to him, Son of man, can these bones live? And Ezekiel answered, O oh Lord God, you know. This was a signal, a way to signal to the listener or the reader, pay attention, this is important. John only used the word tribulation in uh, uh, Revelation and in, in, in his gospel. Um, the Greek word used 45 times in the New Testament, and most commonly translated in the ESV as tribulation or affliction. Sometimes you'll see a suffering or an anguish or persecution in their stead because of the context. The words great along with tribulation occur four other times in the New Testament, but this one is unique because the construction of this in the, in the Greek text is something that, this, that you find in that language that emphasizes this is the singular great tribulation. We would do accomplish the same thing in English by just capitalizing the letters great to, in great and in tribulation. In chapter 16 of John's gospel, we find his use of this word. Jesus is uh, spending his last hours teaching his disciples in John 13 through 16. And in chapter 16, he says to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, you will weep and lament, but the world will rejoice. You will be sorrowful, but your sorrow will turn into joy. When a woman is giving birth, she has sorrow because her hour has come. But when she has delivered the baby, she no longer remembers the anguish for the joy that a human being has been born in the world. I'm not sure we take a survey in here about that recently. Um, so also, you have sorrow now, but I will see you again, and your hearts will rejoice, and no one will take your joy from you. And then he ends up this whole section of teaching, telling them, I have said these things to you, that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. I've often thought that if you really wanted to be a church true to biblical teaching and, and, the, and the truth of the gospel and of our salvation, you should have a reader board out in front that says, in the world you will have tribulation or affliction. See how many people came in in response to that. <laughs> but that's what the truth is. John uses tribulation five times in Revelation. The first one is probably really important, I think, to the context to what we're looking at here. 
he introduces himself. He says, I, John, your brother and partner in the tribulation and the kingdom and the patient endurance that are in Jesus, was on the island called Patmos on account of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. For John, tribulation described his current situation. And he considered his experience as confirmation that he was a brother and a partner in tribulation and patient endurance with those of the seven churches who were suffering for their faith. The message of Smyrna, tribulation described the persecution that they were under. The message to Thyatira, tribulation was a punishment to be inflicted on the one called Jezebel. Tribulation, in this view, is already occurring in John's life. 21 of the 27 or 23 uses of tribulation in Paul's writings refer to current situations, the present reality. And it's interesting that in, in John chapter 7, verse 14, it's the last place in the New Testament you find this word. The word great can be used to emphasize size or intensity or duration. It's any upper limit to the extent of something. Perhaps tribulation mentioned here is said to be great because it started with the apostles and continued to the day of the Lord's return. That's a picture I think we would have here. The context of tribulation may be something of a war that's going on. Uh, that shouldn't surprise us. Uh, Ephesians 6.12, Paul told us, We do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in heavenly places. And this, as he goes on and talks about in the armor of God, our job is to be steadfast, to stand firm. The fight is taken to the enemy by Jesus. That's why the robes of the multitude are not stained with their own metaphorical blood. They're washed white with the blood of Jesus, the Lamb of God. The model for our conflict is not the lion of the tribe of Judah. Our model is the lamb that was standing, yet looked like it had just been slaughtered, that we saw already. Later in Revelation, we'll learn that the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come, for the accuser of our brothers has been thrown down, and they have conquered him by the blood of the lamb and by the word of their testimony, for they love not their lives even unto death. Those who have gone through the great tribulation of this spiritual battle are those who have persevered through the suffering of life in a hostile world. That's something all of us have probably been part of and should be part of. The wars fought with virtue, patient endurance, you might say, we're to fight like lambs. That really inspires fear, right? <laughs> when we are tempted to question that model for what our spiritual warfare and what our Christian walk is like, uh, then we need to spend some time making sure that we're living in a way with our 
perspective and worldview consistent with that seal that's on our foreheads. The final thing, really, and the most important thing, I think, about all these passages is the centrality of the Lamb. Read the passage here. Therefore, they are before the throne of God and serve him day and night in his temple. And he who sits on the throne will shelter them with his presence. They shall hunger no more, neither thirst any more. The sun shall not strike them, nor the scorching heat. For the lamb in the midst of the throne will be their shepherd, and he will guide them to springs of living water, and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. God told Moses to tell the people that they shall be a kingdom of priests. Now we learn that the multitude that has come through the great revelation will serve God day and night in his temple. The word translated serve is only used in the New Testament for carrying out duties associated with worship. And he who sits on the throne, it says, will shelter them. That's an idiom for spreading your tent over someone or bringing him to dwell with you. John is the only New Testament writer who used the verb that means to dwell. It's found once in the Gospel of John. Most of you probably are familiar with it. In chapter 1, verse 14, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we see it about four times in Revelation, with the final occurrence in chapter one, chapter 21, and I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with him, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. Well, it may be tempting to wade into the various debates about interpreting Revelation and all those other subjects associated with that. Verse 17, I think, reminds us that the central figure of Revelation is the Lamb. I know Marty has mentioned this before, too. All but one of the 30 occurrences of Lamb in Revelation refers to Jesus Christ, and there are 30 occurrences. That's a lot for a book this size. Furthermore, verse 17 describes the Lamb as standing in the midst of the throne. Now that implies that the lamb is somehow equal to the one who sits on the throne. It's one of the statements in Revelation that point to the truth of our Trinitarian God. There are several others that are pretty important. It also suggests that the lamb is a connection between the creatures who are before the throne that we see singing and worshiping and bowing and proclaiming all these things and the throne itself. It's consistent with the upside-down nature of the kingdom of God that the lamb will be the shepherd. The weakest member of the flock will be the shepherd and guide his flock to springs of living water Jeremiah writes, Lord, the hope of Israel 
All who forsake you shall be put to shame. Those who turn away from you shall be written in the earth, for they have forsaken the Lord, the fountain of living water. In Isaiah 25, verse 8, we have an illusion that's clearly used here. He, the Lord of hosts, will swallow up death forever, and the Lord God will wipe away tears from all faces, and the reproach of his people he will take away from the earth, for the Lord has spoken. While fully realized dwelling with God has to wait until the new heaven and the new earth, we can and we should get started now. John wrote in the Daxology in his uh, greeting in this, this whole book of Revelation, to him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood and made us a kingdom priest to his God and Father. To him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Amen? Amen. Amen. This is something that Peter clearly understood, just to get the idea off that this is nothing unique or, or just confined revelation. Uh, he wrote, 1 Peter chapter 2, says, But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. This is something I put up with the slides last time I taught through Revelation. I thought it's a good reminder. That we, if we have an ear to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches.